Overcrowded hospitals, long wait times, not enough staff. What's the solution to Canada's health care crisis? I'm Eric Sorensen, sitting in for Mercedes Stevenson. The West Block starts now. The Prime Minister is meeting with his cabinet in Montreal for the next two days. It's a chance for the Liberals to reset the agenda ahead of next week's return to Parliament. It comes at a time when they're struggling in the polls against opposition leader Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives. On the agenda, housing, affordability and improving health care. And that's our focus today. Last week we heard from two doctors who described the crisis hitting emergency rooms and hospitals right now. You talk to any emergency department, we can stand being busy. We don't mind being busy, but overcrowding kills, and that's what we're starting to see. We've gotten very good at naming the problem. We've, uh, we've identified solutions. We haven't been the greatest at implementing those solutions. Joining us ahead of the cabinet retreat is Health Minister Mark Holland. Minister Holland, thanks for joining us. The doctors we spoke with last week, I mean, they say the problems in healthcare, the wait times, the backlogs, are only worse than they were a year ago. Why? Well, I think coming out of the pandemic, uh, we had a health workforce that was exhausted. Uh, we had backlogs uh, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, and this is something that we're seeing all over the globe, uh, really uh, major health demands. Uh, and the good news is uh, we're working with provinces and territories. Uh, we have bilateral agreements. We're gonna be making uh, $200 billion in investments uh, over the next 10 years. Uh, and that includes in individual uh, programs in provinces and territories, four of which have already been announced, where we very specifically outline what improvements those, uh, that money is going to deliver and then create a report card for every province so you can see in metric those improvements. So the system is under a lot of strain. That's natural coming out of the pandemic. Uh, but we're here to work with provinces and territories. You said that you've signed four agreements with provinces, but that means many have not signed on yet, including Ontario and Quebec. What's the holdup? Well, getting the agreements right. Uh, you know, if you look at British Columbia, if you look at PEI, if you look at Alberta, uh, if you look at Nova Scotia, where we've done these agreements, they're phenomenal agreements. They spell out in real clarity exactly where we're going to meet challenges of health, health workforce issues, how we're going to make sure that everyone has a relationship with a family health team, and a, uh, and a family doctor, uh, how we're going to reduce uh, wait times. So, you know, getting these agreements right is what we want. Uh, and so it was always contemplated that this was going to take some time. Uh, and I've been uh, really excited to talk with health ministers across the country uh, to make commitments, not just on the money, but the transformation in our health system generally. So it's about working collaboratively and getting these agreements right. You're going to see the rest of the agreements flowing out over the next two months. Uh, and I'm really excited to be able to share uh, the fruits of that work. But it's important that we get it right, and that's what we've been focused on. The doctors and uh, nurses and health officials say they want to sit down with you as well and with the premiers. You had this g gathering with the premiers a year ago. Maybe you need another summit, like, right away and with those officials as well. Well, you know, one of the things that I've done uh, is been on the road constantly. Uh, in five months, I've uh, been to... Uh, every province, uh, with the exception of Saskatchewan, and I'll be there very soon, uh, many, in some instances, four times, uh, four times to BC, four times to uh, a few other uh, provinces, uh, meeting on the ground with health officials, talking uh, with doctors, talking with nurses, talking with 
the regulatory bodies. Um, so we make huge announcements, for example, on forward credential recognition, uh, getting that down to a 90-day service standard, uh, working with the College of Physicians and Surgeons on uh, taking what normally is an over two-year process, getting that down to three months. So we've been really working through these issues. Uh, and so, and there will be a lot of joint meetings. Uh, I'm doing that regularly. Um, so that, that's going to continue. Uh, you're going to see me uh, traveling all of the time, uh, meeting on the ground where these issues are, finding solutions and working collaboratively. And it doesn't matter if it's a new democratic government in Manitoba or a conservative government in Nova Scotia, uh, wherever it might be, we're, we're working together and recognize that the differences uh, that we have are not important. What is important is solutions. Uh, we need to all be pulling in the same direction and getting things done. That's very much the spirit of Charlottetown. You know, we had an incredible meeting in Charlottetown with all the health ministers making announcements on health workforce, making announcements on data and, and interoperability, uh, making, uh, making uh, headway on health workforce issues, retention issues. So I think by working collaboratively, that's really the answer here. We have a lot of demand, uh, but the answers are there. And, and the solutions are going to be found through collaboration. But when? When will we see the solutions that you're talking about, the results that doctors and everyone else is, they, that they want to see? Immediately. Uh, you can take a look at the, uh, for example, uh, in Nova Scotia, the College of Nurses there has undergone an incredible transformation uh, that others are following uh, to be able to bring folks to allow people to travel within provinces and recognize their credentials immediately uh, in sometimes less than an hour. Uh, and also to, as I mentioned, with foreign credential recognition, to get those timelines way down, get to a 90-day service standard, to work with um, the, uh, the, the process of recognizing credentials to get that way down. So, you know, you're seeing immediate results there. You're seeing immediate results in these bilateral announcements, which are very explicit about exactly what improvements are going to happen to the healthcare system. You also are going to see annual report cards where there are common indicators across province and territories. So you can see how your province or your territory is doing relative to the commitments that were made and see that year over year progress. So you're going to see these, uh, you're seeing the action taken immediately now. You're seeing the change happen immediately now. Uh, and you can see the trajectory of that as we work collaboratively to get out of the challenges that we have right now with health workforce okay. and with these backlogs into a new paradigm. You know, one solution for more health care would be more private health care. And the Ontario government of Doug Ford is pushing forward with more private clinics, not just for MRIs and CT scans, but also for hips and knee surgeries. That sounds like the slippery slope into two-tier medicine. We're not going to allow that to happen. Let me be very clear. Uh, Canada and Canadians um, are deeply proud of having a public health care system, uh, one where you, when you walk into a health facility, the question is, how do we get you better, not what is the size of your bank account? And we know that not only is it a deterioration of care um, to, allow, um, uh, to allow private care to expand, uh, but it really has a huge injurious impact on costs as well. It's way too expensive. So the answer here is, look, there's some challenges. Provinces are, are using some stopgap measures, but we're going to be very clear in our enforcement of the Canada Health Act um, that uh, the care that people get uh, must be public uh, and that the costs associated with that um, uh, need, to, uh, need to be within a public system. Uh, and so we're working with provinces and territories. We understand they have some interim challenges uh, and we understand that uh, there's going to need to be more clarity on things like virtual care 
Uh, but, you know, our adherence uh, to uh, the Canada Health Act is absolute. I want to move on to a question about uh, drug sales to the United States. The U.S. FDA is permitting Florida to uh, purchase and import drugs from Canada. Uh, you've given assurances that Canada will safeguard such sales for, for Canadians to have enough drugs for themselves here. But in the past, the government was very concerned about doing something like that. What's changed? Well, let me be clear. Uh, there is, uh, we're going to do everything to absolutely ensure that Canada's drug supply is protected. And there is no way uh, any country is going to raid our drug supply in a way that endangers domestic um, uh, uh, supply. Um, I have had extremely productive conversations with Ambassador Cohen from the U.S. Uh, my U.S. counterpart, Secretary Becerra, and I had a, a, an extremely positive and, uh, contribution uh, contra uh, conversation as well, making sure, and we're on the same page. Uh, you know, where Canada can uh, expand our pharmaceutical industry and export drugs in a way that does not hurt domestic supply, of course, we're there. Uh, we want to be supportive of our G7 partners and particularly our relationship with the United States. And it's a great opportunity to expand Canadian enterprise. But that cannot come at the cost of Canada's uh, ability to supply its own population. Uh, Secretary Becerra and Ambassador Cohen uh, indicated uh, their support for that position. Uh, and we talked about our desire to work collectively um, to make sure that not only for our two countries, but for our allies and for uh, for, for all countries, uh, that uh, drug supply uh, issues are addressed and that we have an adequate and safe supply uh, and the importance of working collaboratively. Just one quick question. You're entering this liberal retreat where the emphasis is much, very much on housing, on affordability. What is your message to your colleagues to ensure that uh, the health issue is not last year's issue, but is still front and center? Well, we saw in Manitoba, we saw in Nova Scotia, uh, elections turn on health. Canadians care deeply about their health care. Uh, and so I know that my colleagues are as committed as I am to making sure that we uh, work with provinces and territories. We've already set aside these dollars, uh, money. Um, in particular, if you look at us compared to other G7 countries, the money that provinces and territories have uh, is, is absolutely sufficient to meet the need. Uh, but we need to also work together uh, to help provinces and territories transform their health systems, uh, to deal with data challenges, interoperability, um, to look at the ability of deploying uh, new technology and new ways of working. Uh, and I'm really excited. There's a, there's a spirit of collaboration there. When I travel the country to see the solutions that are present and possible, um, you know, I'm going to be uh, going in saying we, not only do we have to keep the pressure on, but that as we are doing that, great things are possible and will happen for our health system. All right. Health Minister Mark Holland, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Eric. It promises to be one of the most unusual American elections in history. Last week's Iowa caucuses launched Donald Trump far ahead of his opponents for the Republican nomination and up against a sitting U.S. president who's made it clear that he is running. The contest for the two nominations appears to be all but over. Or is there a sliver of hope that New Hampshire could inject some uncertainty into the Republican race? Joining us to discuss the very high stakes in this year's presidential election are Republican strategist Jonathan Madison and Democratic strategist Sarada Perry. Thanks to you both for joining us. John Jonathan, first to you, New Hampshire is just uh, two days away. It's a different dynamic from Iowa. What does Nikki Haley have to do to make this a contest, or is it over? You know, I think she needs to continue to do what she's been doing. You know, she was out there about 35 days 
and had about 49 events, almost 50 events within that time frame. She's doing everything she can, and I think she's going to make a very big impact, right? All she has to do is establish herself as a credible threat to Trump, right? She doesn't have to win. And if you look at a recent 538 poll, it doesn't look like she's projected to win. But as long as she comes out uh, within some kind of margin of error, she's going to be in a very great position uh, to make this a very uh, contested race uh, going down the road. So I think she's going to surprise a lot of people. Sarada, from a Democratic perspective, does, uh, does that sound like just the best thing that could happen? Um, I mean, I hear what Jonathan's saying, and she has certainly run a somewhat compelling race thus far, being able to gain some amount of traction in at least the state of New Hampshire. However, she and her fellow opponents of Trump have not ever really gone after him in a way to distinguish themselves from him and compel people that they could actually beat him. So let's just say she does come in second in New Hampshire. And, and as of now, you know, Donald Trump is so far ahead that second is probably the hope, best she can hope for. Well, then she goes, you know, we've got a fair amount of time before the next primary, which is in her home state of Carolina, South Carolina. And in South Carolina, she is, you know, orders of magnitude behind Trump. Uh, in part because the New Hampshire electorate is very different from the rest of the Republican electorate in the country. It's more moderate. You have far more independents there who are going to vote in the Republican primary because the Democratic primary isn't really one. And so it's a really different electorate, and she's been able to make some strides with college-educated voters up there. However, it's just not clear that anybody can beat Trump. Now, of course, I am not one to make predictions uh, ever again uh, after the 2016 election, uh, as many aren't, but, um, but I, and anything is certainly possible, uh, but uh, it's, it just seems unlikely, and, and she's yeah. got a tough hill to climb, I think. Jonathan, every U.S. election is deemed historic. Is this one more historic? Are the stakes, from your point of view, higher? They are. Uh, they're higher for a number of reasons, one in which is, Right now, uh, America feels very much demoralized. If you're a resident here, you get the sense that the world doesn't look at us the same on a national level, on an international level, rather. Uh, we're not respected the same as we once were. People are looking back to the past for validation as opposed to the future. And I, I think that people see in Trump, a lot of people in this country, a leader who could sort of restore us to that, that footing, that respectable place. And that's very debatable. That's a very contentious idea. But it's very pivotal to answer your question. We're in a period right now where a lot of other countries, a lot of countries around the world are turning inward rather than outward. And they're turning into a protected status rather than a welcoming status. You look at organizations like NATO and the EU, the IMF, they're having very difficult, they're having a lot of difficulty because their leaders are struggling to keep up with the demands of their constituents, the perspective of their constituents in terms of protecting their own as opposed to protecting the world. So I think that's why you, you hear a lot of this rhetoric from Trump about NATO and whatnot. But it's important because it's what kind of set the tone and the conditions pre-World War One and pre-World War Two, which is scary uh, to, to some extent as well. But I think that's why this election is very important. Well, Sarada, uh, I, I imagine you don't disagree that it's very important, but for maybe a, a, a different reasons. 
Yeah, I think Jonathan's right. The stakes couldn't be higher. And it's funny, you know, you frame this election up front as, as sort of historic, but it's also just a rematch, right, of, of 2020 between essentially two incumbents, in a sense. And I think there is a sense of uncertainty right now in the among the American people, but I think globally, too. And I, it's not clear to me that this has so much to do with individual leadership as it does with just the rapid changes that are taking over people's lives in a sense that maybe their kids futures aren't going to be as bright as they imagined, as bright as their own were, right? We're just at this pivotal moment in history in terms of technology and all the rest. And so I think it's just this sort of scary time in general. I would say that if your interest is in building a a world where countries are working together to fight our shared challenges, whether it's climate change or growing authoritarianism or global poverty, the, the notion of bringing back America first Trump seems antithetical, right? And in fact, I think what we've seen in Joe Biden is a president who perhaps does not have the the bombast of a Trump, which I think is beneficial to the country, but also has had relationships with leaders around the world and a huge amount of experience. And what you hear from global leaders is that they now have a sense of stability in President Biden that they did not have with Trump because you couldn't rely on Trump to keep the deals that he negotiated or live up to his word. And he was cozying up to dictators and authoritarians that were frankly terrifying to the rest of the world. So I think at least in Joe Biden, you have somebody who does believe in our democratic ideals. I just uh, I want to ask you about, you know, Canadian leaders who always tread carefully on the subject of U.S. elections uh, because they have to work with whoever is elected. But uh, our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, was asked in a Q&A this week and, and he said this. Do Americans want a nation that is optimistic or will they choose a step backwards? Nostalgia for a time that never existed, a populism that reflects anxiety and fury without necessarily offering solutions. Jonathan, that, that is highly charged language. What strikes you about a foreign leader who would speak in that way, clearly talking about Donald Trump? Well, first of all, I, I commend him for his confidence in just speaking his mind. I mean, it, Trump has no problem speaking his, <laughs> you know. And uh, I mean, some of what he said kind of related to what I just said as far as a lot of people in this country are looking back. And that's one of the criticism that Trump has had. It's, it's, it's that he's been trying to point the country in the direction of a pastime that some people argue never really existed, making America great again. Um, you know, so I think that's what he was speaking to. But I would also say I've heard and read some comments from the prime minister that said no matter who is in office, it's going to be a challenge. You know, whatever American presidency they've worked with, I think he also mentioned it was a challenge working with Barack Obama, Joe Biden as well. So uh, whoever is in office, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, I think ultimately it's going to be a matter of keeping Trump at bay, <laughs> so, so to speak. I don't know anyone who can do that. So I'm sure that's what the prime minister is referring to. And uh, hopefully uh, we can all figure that out soon enough. Sarah, most Canadians want a normal relationship with Washington. I think that many view Biden as normal and, and Donald Trump maybe not so much. What is your advice to a Canadian leader uh, approaching this election? Well, I think, um, you know, Trudeau speaks for probably a lot of global leaders who feel like we're at this pivotal moment in history, as I talked about, and that there's never been a more important time for really steady uh, global leadership that is, as Jonathan said, looking to the future and not just litigating the arguments of the past. And so I would hope and I think that we're at this moment where, you know, frankly, democracy around the world is under threat. 
individual freedoms around the world are under threat. And so it's incumbent upon all leaders and, and all societies that believe in those values to be fighting for them, you know, at home and in their alliances abroad. And so, you know, I, I, as Jonathan said, nobody can really control Trump. And I think that it's really important for all of us to come together to make sure that he does not win the presidency again. Because frankly, after what we saw on January 6th, 2021, it's not clear that if he were to win, he would ever leave office. Uh, we are The stakes are truly that high. We have never seen anything like this. And so well, for everybody who believes in the ideal of democracy, it's going to be really important to make sure that the United States does not elect Donald Trump again. Uh, Sarah, uh, Jonathan, it's a fascinating subject and a, and a worrisome one for Canadians uh, as they watch this. Uh, the West Bloc will be assembling this panel uh, at regular intervals all through this year. So we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for talking to us today. Thank you. Good to be here. Now for one last thing. We learned this month that 2023 was the hottest year in modern history and that 2024 could break that record. When we kick around topics for one last thing, we think about current issues like climate, but also immigration, housing, homelessness, jobs, and you soon realize how many big issues tie into climate change. Immigration, refugees on the move because of drought, the homeless increasingly besieged by extreme weather, housing will have to be made climate resilient. And then there's energy. The electrical grid across North America is stretched almost to the limit, winter and summer. Alberta has had four times as many grid alerts the last three years compared with the three years before. Overshadowed in Alberta's energy emergency last weekend and who's to blame, people were asked to reduce their power usage to avoid blackouts. And it worked. Albertans responded to a climate-related weather crisis. It's one small example, but together, one small solution was found. So many solutions are needed in housing, jobs, the energy grid, all bound together in part by the need to adapt to climate change. We are all in it together. Albertans got through it together last weekend. And in what could be the hottest year ever, we're going to need more of that. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thanks for listening. The West Block will be back next Sunday.